Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Good Dog Pod, where we discuss all things related to canine health, research, how Good Dog helps breeders run their breeding programs, and so much more. I'm Nicole, the breeder community lead here at Good Dog. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm so excited to be joined today by Roger Allen, who is an incredible member of our Good Breeder community. And today we're going to be talking all about emergency evacuation for dog owners, as well as summer safety tips to keep your dogs protected all summer long. So, Roger, I'm so excited that you're here with us today, joining us for this podcast episode. To kick things off, do you want to briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background with dogs and your breeding program? Great. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here, too. Yes, our breeding program is called Focus Intensity Border Collies. We raise border collies, rough-coated border collies specifically. We have two dams and one sire right now. We have a fourth border collie, but he didn't make the cut because of an issue with his hips. So I've been with dogs all my life, various breeds, and they grew up as part of our family. At one point, our family had Siberian Huskies, rescues, and we had this deal with our sons that when they turned 11, they could get a dog. Mill's son got a beagle. It did not live long. It had a lot of health issues, and when he was in his mid-teens, it passed on. That hurt him, so he went out there and researched breeds and breeders. He found an ethical breeder of border collies. He got a border collie, paid for it with his own money. He and his then-girlfriend named it Einstein. That was the most appropriate name for a dog, and most all of the border collies I've met should be named after scientists because they're incredibly smart dogs. So that's why we got into breeding border collies. We fell in love with the breed. I think that's what most good breeders, the origin of their story begins with falling in love with a breed and a dog, and that's what we did. So we're here to better the breed by doing all the appropriate health testing, puppy culture, everything we can to give our owners a reliable, well-tempered border collie. I don't know if I actually mentioned this to you when we previously spoke, but I absolutely adore border collies, and I was lucky enough a few years ago to be on a vacation with my family in Ireland and we got to go to a farm and we got to see a border collie herding demonstration and we got to meet some of the new puppies and that was my first time actually meeting the breed in person and it was one of the best days of my life when I was leaving the farm the people that worked there joked that they had to check my backpack because they were so convinced (laughs) that I loved the puppies so much that I would have taken one but Like you said, with the name Einstein, this is what made me think of it. I have never seen a smarter dog in my life than the Border Collie that I met that day that did the herding demonstration. It was one of the most fascinating things I've ever witnessed. So I just had to mention that because I'm a big fan of the breed. Well, we do have a litter coming up here shortly. Oh, man, don't tempt me. (laughs) I don't know if my New York City apartment would be the most exciting environment for a Border Collie. Actually, that's, I think, a misnomer about border collies is they need a lot of room. They need a lot of space. They have to be active 24-7. 
They don't. They do have a higher energy level than many breeds, but they need a job. So if they get to go out and get a newspaper or pick up a periodical or even a coney dog, that's what they're looking for. And my son, Einstein, uh, went to Ohio State University with him. And where do college students live? Apartments. So hmm. You might have very well. <laughs> <laughs> So just speaking of your background with dogs, I'm curious how long you've been a member of Good Dog and how did you find out about our community and what made you want to join? Well, when we were putting together our kennel, which started about three and a half years ago, Good Dog sent me an email. And you were just starting out about that time, I believe. And I looked at what you were doing, and it reflected the way people, consumers, shop these days. They don't go to Target and Kmart and ShopGo websites as much as they go to an Amazon. And you're sort of an Amazon of dogs. So I like that I had the ability on Good Dog to tell my story. I don't get that in other formats. I just get to post the dogs and talk about the dogs and their backgrounds, their strengths, their weaknesses, and most importantly, pictures, because it's really true. A picture is worth a thousand words. So since being on Good Dog, I have really had a lot of good applicants come to me. I'm able to tailor my application a little bit to get out the questions I need answered as a breeder. And I find your staff, now I've been in various occupations where I've worked with other company staff, but every time I have an issue, it gets resolved quickly and professionally. So I like working with Good Dog and its staff as well as its platform. I'm so glad to hear that. We love working with you as well. That actually, what you just said about Your previous experience brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you have shared with me in the past that you have a background beyond the background of a dog breeder. You actually have a really extensive background as an attorney, military member, police officer, federal agent. I hope I have all of those correct. Would you tell our listeners more about that? I went to college to get a degree in criminal justice. I wanted to serve my country, so I enrolled in the Army. The Army decided, well, you have a degree in criminal justice. We have many branches, including military police, but we're going to put you in armor. We're going to put you in tanks. I did very well there, but I always wanted to use that degree. I mean, that's where my interest was, or I would have majored in criminal justice in the first place. So I decided to get out after my commitment was done. I stayed in the reserves long enough that I eventually retired from the reserves. But I went on to be a police officer in Dallas, Texas, did well there, went to the Department of Justice as a special agent. I noticed that when a case went to trial, the U.S. attorneys would turn to me and say, hey, how do you see this working out? You know, I'd be the co-chair basically at the trial. And I was really intrigued by the law. I developed a love of the law at that point. So I had to go to law school. And I went back home to the University of Wisconsin, got my law degree, practice in civil practice, later turned that into criminal practice. And the one job we didn't talk about the other day was I was a criminal court judge. And having done all that, suffered a health issue. You know, those people who work hard sometimes don't take care of themselves. I didn't. So I ended up deciding 
it was time to retire and focus on not the job, but living and spend more time with the family. And I have this theory that you can't just slam on the brakes in retirement. You have to have something that keeps you moving forward. And I did not realize how much moving forward having a dog kennel would involve, but that's how I got into dogs. Uh, and that's my background. Worked with a lot of canines in the military and in law enforcement. And so that's another connection to dogs. Yeah, it's very cool to see kind of how all of your backgrounds have been so interconnected. And I think also very connected with the topic we're going to talk about today, which is emergency evacuations for your pets and being responsive in those heightened emergency situations. So just to get into kind of that topic and all of that, last year you were unfortunately affected by wildfires. Can you tell us more about what that experience was like? Yes. First of all, what I'm going to tell you today is I think it's best captured under the physician heal thyself, but I should have taken my own advice and the advice I'd received over many, many years in my professions and the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. So we weren't. We were caught flat-footed. In March of 2022, towards the end of the month, there was a big fire. Now, to set the scene for your audience, we live in Seymour, Tennessee. Over the mountain from us is a community some people may have heard of called Pigeon Forge or Sevierville, Tennessee. If you're a fan of Dolly Parton, you already know where we are. We're near Gatlinburg. We are just outside the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So Hatcher Mountain has a number of resorts and beautiful homes. And it had caught on fire on March 30th. And that wildfire ultimately consumed 2,500 acres and 219 structures. We went to bed on March 30th, looking at the smoke, thinking, geez, we might have to evacuate, but it just didn't look like it was going to come near us. Well, during the night, another fire began. All these fires were started by downed power lines in high winds. That one was a lot closer to us. And at 2.30 a.m., we got a phone call, and this is something I want to emphasize, sign up for your emergency notifications on your cell phones. Those are great. They come on even if your cell phone is turned off. So we got this notification, and it was a mandatory evacuation order. And that's where we're at. 2.30 in the morning, your phone's going off. Spouse's phone on the other side of the bed's going off, and these are very loud siren-like notifications, and it says mandatory evacuation for your area. So what you just described obviously sounds very scary. It's two in the morning, you're getting an alert that you have to evacuate and leave your home, and you obviously have to do so very quickly. I can imagine a lot of thoughts are kind of swimming around your head in that moment. What were some of the first steps you took to ensure that you and your dogs were safe? And in what ways did you feel kind of prepared for what had happened and also unprepared? Well, I have to back up and give credit to my wife. She used to work in the law enforcement field in crime labs. And she has always been a very calm, introspective and intelligent person. I tend to be sort of a reactionary person and very quick at decision-making, but that sometimes gets me in trouble too. 
So I think we're the perfect combination of faces. We literally asked each other, what do we do next? And she got some things together. We did not have go back together. And that was mistake number one. Our dogs are extremely well-trained. I focus a lot of time and effort on training them. Reagan and Axel do some herding work with a trainer. That means they are used to following commands and behaving well. So we got our stuff together, got our medications together, got the dogs a bowl because I could only find one. We got the dog bowl. We grabbed a big bag of food, not just a couple of small ones. We grabbed one bag of food. At this time, we had a Great Dane Husky mix and four Border Collies. And we did what we always do when we go to get in the car. We let the dogs outside. Normally, they'll run to the car and wait for us. But normally, there isn't smoke in your neighborhood. And we're in a mountain neighborhood. There was smoke wafting its way around. And so a neighbor's house were on fire. It was a great deal of smoke. One of our dogs, Reagan, the most reliable one, panicked. And she went to her safe place. And her safe place is under our deck. We have a wraparound porch. She went under the decking of that, which is not a place I want to go in the day, let alone the night. There could be snakes under there. There could be a coyote under there. Who knows what's under there? So mistake number two, if you will, was letting the dogs outside off leash. No matter where you live, no matter if you have a fenced yard or not, the dogs are going to panic when they smell smoke. I can think of all sorts of natural disasters where your dog is going to go outside and the environment has changed and it's telling its instincts, run, get out of here. So have your dog on a leash preferably a harness. If we've been thinking about the one fire was already raging and could come our direction, the conditions were ripe for any other fires to start in our neighborhood, and one did. We could have left them in harnesses, in our crates. Some of them sleep on our bed. That was not good either because they could pick up on us that we were a little bit excited. It's the wrong time of day. But we did grab some water, and I think ultimately one of the best things we grabbed as sort of an afterthought, was the chainsaw and gas for the chainsaw. Now, those of you who have chainsaws know that I didn't mention something very critical. I didn't take oil for the bar. So this all, to me, says, well, what we did was good. What we didn't do, like packing a couple of blankets, more than one day's change of clothing, We did not grab any paperwork that might be necessary for insurance purposes or such. All of this we didn't plan for. And that's the critical thing, if I can get it across to people today, is you have to sit down and plan out for your likely disasters or emergencies and then work your plan. We had a saying in the military, plans are made to fail, but you're one step ahead if you planned for that failure. I like that a lot. I think what you say is very true. It's one of those things that you don't think it's going to happen until it happens to you. So if we can get anything across from this podcast episode is that there are proactive things that you can do regardless of where you live, regardless of what the weather risks are, where you live, 
I think everyone who has a pet can have some kind of bag put together just in the event of any kind of emergency, regardless of if it's weather related or not. So what would you say that you learned from the experience about preparedness for your pets in the event of an emergency? And do you now keep something like an emergency preparedness kit on hand? And are there any precautions you're taking now that you didn't before? Yes, I wish your listeners could see why I'm holding my hand. I have a USB or a flash drive. On there are the pet's records. Now, it's been kind of surpassed by the technology of the cell phone. I now, when I go to the veterinarian, will take a snapshot of their record. So I've got that with me in an album, clearly marked dog records. So if something happens to me, my spouse or others won't have to search through all the 16,000 dog pictures on my phone to find the important stuff. We do carry a first aid kit for the dogs in the car now. We do carry two gallons of water in the car at all times. We carry treats because the dogs got bored. We ended up staying in a parking lot where we could view the fire from a couple of miles away. And that was another mistake we made because while we thought we might be back in our home the next day, it turned out to be three days before we actually got back in our home. All three days spent in a car because all the hotels filled up. That should be part of your plan. Where are you going to go? How many dogs will they permit in their rooms? Because most of the hotels around here will permit one or two, but very few permit more than two. We had five. You also need to get out of the immediate area of the evacuation. We made the mistake of staying nearby. And what happens is everybody else stays nearby. Everything is full. Some of the restaurants, even McDonald's, ran out of buns for their burgers. So you run out of resources and the shelters filled up quite quickly. Some shelters won't accept pets. I don't know what you're supposed to do with them. We checked with our veterinarian who runs a kennel as well. Her workers were affected by the fire. She had no way at work. She could handle the veterinary stuff, but she could not handle kenneling of dogs at that time. So my second piece of advice is don't stay in the area of the evacuation. Get out. Have somewhere to go as part of your plan. We now have a place an hour away that we can go to for a short-term stay, and our in-laws three and a half hours away in Virginia. So, yeah, we carry a lot in the car. Blankets are already in the car. There's some, I think I ate most of them, but normally we keep a few snacks in the car just to get us out of the area. At 2.30 in the morning, you wake up, there's no restaurants, there's no bathrooms to go to, there are no services, even though this is a tourist area. It's really interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is that this grab and go bag that I've spoken about for our conversation and that I've always kind of had in my head is like the image of preparedness. It's not enough. It involves sitting down and thinking of what is my emergency evacuation plan, plan meaning what happens when I'm out of my house? Where do I go? What do I do with my dogs? Where can I stay? What is my backup in the event that my local vet can't take me? So it's really interesting that you're presenting all of these things as this like larger plan. And it's not as easy as 
you know, just having a bag ready with some day's worth of food for your dog. It really is something that you need to be taking the time to sit down and plan out because that is really how you can kind of account for everything that you're going to need, even the things that you can't expect. Right. If you have a kennel with, let's say, 10 dogs, it's unlikely that you can even fit 10 dogs in a vehicle. It's unlikely you can split them up amongst two vehicles, depending upon their breed size. Mm -hmm. You may need to consider getting a trailer and pre-fitting it with crates. I mean, you're not going to want to sit there with a fire running down the mountain or a flood or a mudslide and be fixing crates in a trailer. So it's something you want to do ahead of time. Medications too. Where do you get refills? If you have a Walgreens or a CVS, okay, you can refill those across the country. But what if you go to a local pharmacy? Do you know if you can get your prescriptions refilled? We plan on having enough now to get us to one of those other locations of everything. One thing I was happy about, give credit to my departed father, who harped on me since I had my first driving lesson, keep your gas tank full. And coming from the Midwest, that was mantra we passed on to our kids, because if you get stuck in the snow, in a storm, you might be there quite a while. Very great advice. All right, everyone, you are listening to the Good Dog Pod. We'll be right back. Did you know that pet scams accounted for about 18% of online shopping frauds this past year, costing consumers more than $2 million? Good Dog is here to change that. Payment on Good Dog is the secure payment platform that breeders and buyers deserve. Unlike other options, Payment on Good Dog is built to give breeders and buyers peace of mind by providing protection and support every step of the way. Exclusively available to members of our Good Breeder community, Payment on Good Dog is completely free for breeders to use. Buyers can also use Payment on Good Dog completely for free or choose to pay a small optional fee to access additional benefits. We guarantee your payment against chargebacks, cancellations, and fraud, all while providing a seamless and easy payment experience from start to finish. With protected payments, easy invoicing, payment verification, and centralized records. So you can focus on what matters most, connecting with amazing Good Dog applicants and getting your puppies off to their new homes. Get started today by applying to join our Good Breeder community at gooddog.com join. Okay, so we're going to take a brief pause from our interview with Roger to talk about the new question that came into the Good Dog Pod mailbag for this week. So this question is from Kelly C. And it's about our new preferred breeder program. And Kelly's question is, how are preferred breeders set apart? The preferred breeder program is a new program that we recently launched that recognizes and rewards breeders for choosing to place their pups on Good Dog. So to answer Kelly's question, when you qualify as a preferred breeder, you receive special rewards and recognition that help you stand out to potential puppy buyers. And preferred breeders receive an exclusive badge that's displayed on your good breeder profile and in search results, and it indicates your status as a preferred breeder to good dog applicants. And they also receive higher ranking in search results, so more buyers will see your pups. How to become a preferred breeder. Everyone can become a preferred breeder. Each month, we'll review your account and notify you automatically if you're eligible. Here's how you can qualify. Respond to messages on Good Dog within 48 hours on average and accept one or more final puppy payments on Good Dog in the past six months. 
Once you qualify as a preferred breeder, make sure you continue meeting the requirements listed above to keep your status as a preferred breeder. Our team is always here, of course, to help you succeed on Good Dog. And if you have questions about the preferred breeder program or need help understanding how to qualify, please reach out to the Good Dog Specialist team at breederteam at gooddog.com. Something you mentioned earlier in our conversation was you regretted bringing your dogs out, not on a leash to the car, as you always had done. Is there anything else that you would say you shouldn't do in the event of an emergency evacuation that kind of crosses your mind based on your experience? Yeah, a couple of things. I owe this to my spouse. I thought it was a note she wrote about this presentation, but in big capital letters, she wrote, don't panic. And so I said, I never panicked during these presentations. She said, no, the reason we got out quickly and had most everything we needed was we didn't panic. And the fact that Reagan went under the porch, oh, yeah, we had a big flashlight with us, too. Don't trust your cell phone flashlight. You may need a heavy-duty flashlight. And we have those in our vehicles. Everyone should have one in their vehicle. So I think that was one thing we did well. It's great advice not to panic. And I think part of the reason you wouldn't panic in that kind of situation is because you're prepared. So it kind of goes hand in hand that your preparedness automatically makes you hopefully not panic in the event of some kind of an emergency. And I mean, I think it's very true that animals really perceive our behavior and then they mimic how we're feeling and they react based on that. So it makes a lot of sense that if you are acting very excited or anxious around your dog, they're also going to act the same way because you're signaling to them that there's some kind of problem. So I think that is really great advice that, you know, seems very obvious or practical. But I think in a situation where you're in an emergency, it's obviously harder to remember that than not. So yeah, I think that is wonderful advice. And I believe we covered this, but I'll just ask it again in case there's anything we wanted to add. What tips would you offer on where dog owners should plan to go in the event of an emergency evacuation? Because I know you mentioned hotels can be pretty difficult, especially if you have dogs of a certain size or a certain amount of dogs. Right. First thing I want to talk about is when you're going to that place, drive the main roads. You may know a shortcut, but that shortcut is not going to be opened up by the emergency crews they're going to stick to keeping the main roads open. If you need help, they're only going to go on the main roads. So stick to the main roads. Secondly, unless you have the ability to move a large tree out of the road, even a chainsaw may not be enough. Now, on those main roads, like I said, they'll keep those clear and open. But this area is riddled with small roads they'd never keep open. And you asked about where to go. I would say wherever it is, you need to pre-coordinate that. The people need to know when you do your plan, hey, if anything happens, can we come to your location? Now, around here, there are a lot of hotels. There are a lot of cabins that you can rent. Now, when cabins are burning down, probably not the place you want to go, but there are plenty of areas outside the evacuation area you could go, but the shelters are going to fill up. A lot of them will accept animals. Those that do, you're going to be in there with animals who are maybe not vaccinated, maybe not well socialized and well behaved. I wouldn't want to take my dog there. It's like taking it to an unknown dog park. I recommend that people consider campgrounds. 
outside the evacuation area, way outside. I'm talking an hour or two. So you're away from all the people. There's a tremendous number of people who come into your area to see the fire or see the disaster. So you want to get away from those because they strain resources too. Hopefully you've got a family member or a friend that can take you in. Also, consider sheltering your dogs in a kennel, a quality kennel that they've been to before, because you will have enough on your hands to deal with, especially if you're directly affected by the event, such as your home burns down, that you don't need to be caring for other animals under those conditions as well. And they might be safer elsewhere also, not to mention it lifts a little bit of a burden off of you, but they also might be more comfortable, which is, I know, maybe hard for some pet owners to accept because you want your pets with you, but they might be happier and more comfortable in a different situation, which might help them being away from you for a small amount of time, hopefully. And your friends and in-laws and family might be happier taking you in than taking you and your dogs in, especially if you're a larger kennel operator. Mm -hmm. So from what we talked about, I know there are a lot of different decisions to think through. And I know this is also really unique to anyone listening to this, depending on your area, what kind of disasters you can anticipate in your area, how remote you are, if you're in a crowded city versus not. So I really encourage anyone listening to this to really take the time and think about where you're situated in the world, your unique situation, and what exactly you need to ensure your safety and your pet's safety. Something we didn't talk about, and we don't have to get too much into this topic, but I know some breeders could be in the situation where they have not only dogs, but a litter of puppies, which can be a whole new element of stress. So I had some notes here about evacuating a litter of puppies. They're very quick bullets. I imagine a lot of breeders in our community would have a lot to add to this. But I had notes about a kid's inflatable pool can be used as a portable whelping box for puppies up to two weeks of age. Newborn puppies can be transported in warming boxes and puppies under three weeks of age need supplemental heat. So something like a microwavable disc or heating pad. So I know evacuating a litter of puppies, especially very young puppies, is a whole other ball game that I don't know if we have enough time to talk about all of those things. Maybe we would need a follow up episode, but just wanted to throw that out there. Is there anything you would add to that? I would add that people should talk to their emergency government people, their fire department and their police department as well as part of the planning. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think it really takes a village to put together this kind of plan in the ways that you would want to, especially thinking through all of these little details that you learn to think through. So that is great advice. Before we shift over to summer safety, anything else you wanted to add about emergency evacuations? No, I really appreciate the dog putting on this seminar as a podcast. I hope it helps people. Me too. I mean, I've learned a lot. I live in an area where we're actually pretty affected by hurricanes and floods. Not, I would say, too much as Florida, for example, but there have been instances growing up. I lived through Hurricane Sandy. My family was affected. We lost power for three weeks and we had a family dog. And it was just 
something I guess we really didn't think about because it doesn't occur to you until you're actually going through it. So I have learned so much. And now after this podcast wraps up, I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about my emergency evacuation plan. I think everyone should do it regardless of where you live, regardless of you thinking you don't have any risks to worry about because you really just want to be prepared no matter what. So I have learned a great deal already. And while you're here and we're talking about safety, and since this podcast is going to be airing in June at the start of the summer, I thought it'd be a really great time to tell our listeners about summer safety tips for dogs. Summer is an amazing time of year. It's one of my favorites where we're enjoying warmer weather. Our dogs are enjoying warmer weather with us. We're outside more of the time. But it can also be some pretty significant dangers associated with summer that kind of are unique to the summer months. So what are some of the dangers that dog owners should be aware of specifically in the summer? Well, one of them is, you know, you're working your dogs outside, playing with your dogs. They need water. Additionally, if you've had a dog that's been sitting around the house, sort of a couch potato all winter, they can't ramp up and catch a dozen Frisbees. They need to slowly build up just like a human does. It's one of the times I think it's okay to anthropomorphize animals, compare their exercise regimen to yours, and it's pretty much the same. Athletic injuries, and there's the wildlife that's been hibernating or gone all year. That here can include some apex predators, such as bears. Other issues lie in the grass, snakes. I just was told to mow the lawn because it was too tall and snakes could get in the yard. That is one of my worst nightmares. I'm very afraid of snakes. With some of those dangers in mind, what are some of your tips for keeping your dog safe throughout the summer? Well, certainly proper grooming is important. Take it to a groomer, make sure the hair is cut appropriate. Daily brushing, you know, every breed has its own regimen on how much brushing is appropriate, but... If you're going out in the environment, there are all sorts of thorns and bugs. Uh, So daily brushing, light brushing, just to make sure you get anything out. Check your dog's mouth for broken teeth. Just basically go over your dog to make sure, you know, if you had a car before you took a long summer trip, you do a top to bottom inspection of it and make sure all the parts are there. And that's what you should be doing with your dog. Also pay attention to your dog. Is that tongue hanging out? Is it turning blue? Then you need to back off a little bit on whatever your exercise regimen is. And as a breeder, is there anything different you need to worry about with puppies in the summer, especially? They're obviously a lot more fragile, susceptible to heat, things like that. How do you ensure they're safe in the warmer months? Boy, I'm going to touch on the third rail here. A lot of breeders take their puppies out around four weeks. And I know a lot of veterinarians will tell you they shouldn't go outside until they have their first shots. If you look at puppy culture, it recommends taking them outside for their first time at four weeks. At four weeks old, there's a lot that they can acquire from the environment, including roundworms, hookworms, parvo. There's a lot to be concerned about in the environment. So maybe you take them outside, you have an elevated platform, that they can stand on so that they're not making direct contact with the ground and maybe bleach that after every use and keep it clean. Make sure the puppies have access to water, clean water. That's a struggle even indoors is making sure that that water is clean because invariably somebody decides I'm going to take the shortcut 
after being in the pea tray and walk through the water. So you're constantly changing water and that becomes more important outside. Their water consumption goes up when they're outside. Watch for thorns to get in their little paws. And something we have to watch for here, maybe not so much other places, as I mentioned, apex predators, we have those, but we also have turkey vultures, hawks, and eagles. And I can tell you that without a cover on my little puppy hut outside, I might have lost a puppy on one occasion. So, And actually, something you mentioned about that being unique to where you live, I was thinking about something unique to where I live is hot pavement. I am surrounded by mm-hmm. pavement being in a large city, and that can get extremely, extremely hot. And, you know, we're walking outside in shoes. Our dogs are not. So... A tip that I learned is to actually put the back of your hand on that pavement. And if you can't keep your hand there comfortably for about seven seconds, it means it's too hot for your dog. So some things you might want to think about in the summer, especially if you live in a larger city, is shifting your walking schedules around to earlier in the morning when it's a little cooler out. And then similarly, later in the evening, just to really protect your dog's paws and protect them from just heat in general. Another thing that I always find really interesting to talk about this time of year is firework safety. And I think, you know, it's good to kind of give people a bit of a heads up now that we're in June and July is fast approaching so we can get this into everyone's heads. A lot of dogs are startled by loud noises in general and fireworks might be one of the worst of all. And a lot of dogs will run away because their fight or flight response has been triggered, kind of like what you were talking about earlier in our conversation about, you know, one of your dogs running and hiding under your porch because their fight or flight response was triggered. And I actually learned this last year that more dogs actually go missing around 4th of July than any other time of the year. And there are a lot of ways that you can protect your dog from being in a situation where they will be extremely fearful from fireworks. And the main thing is by letting them stay home and skipping celebrations Your dog will not be mad at you for leaving them behind, missing a barbecue or a cookout because, you know, you're proactively protecting them. And if a July 4th celebration, let's say, is in your home, setting up a quiet and safe space for your dog away from the crowd beforehand can also be really helpful. And also just ensuring that their collar, their ID, all of their information is up to date and your dog is microchipped. Those are some proactive things that you can do in the next few weeks leading up to July 4th and just summer in general. I feel like you never know when fireworks are going to be going off. That can really protect your dogs because it's a really great time to celebrate, but I don't know if that means your dog necessarily wants to be part of that celebration. Right. We have a dog, Reagan, again, who's reactive to fireworks, but through desensitization training, her reaction is much more manageable. She now likes to go when the fireworks are being shot off or gunshots. There's a lot of shooting that goes on in a rural community, at least our rural community. And so she now goes in her crate, but you're absolutely right. That's something that you can plan for and work for, you know, try the desensitization training. I know it doesn't work for every pup. It did an incredible job for her. But I tend to say if you have a dog, treat it like a family member. If your family member would react that way, would you take them out to the 4th of July celebration? No. Exactly. And I think the last kind of 
warning slash flag that we'll want to talk about today is just canine heat stress. So heat and summer in general, they go hand in hand. I'm sure anyone listening to this will know that dogs do not sweat like humans do. They only have a few sweat glands in their feet, in the pads of their feet, which makes them way more sensitive to heat than we are. As humans, sweat is the way we regulate our body temperatures. It's how we can cool ourselves down. And dogs can't do that for themselves. So some signs of canine heat stress that I just wanted to share so people can be on the lookout for them. Panting or difficulty breathing, a rapid pulse, dry or tacky gums or an abnormal gum color, weakness, disorientation, tremors, seizures, or if your dog is acting very lethargic, vomiting or diarrhea, and lack of urination. So if you're seeing any of those things in your dog, if your dog's exhibiting any of those behaviors, you're going to want to start taking some of the following actions. So getting them out of the heat immediately, whether that's indoors, into shade, a shaded area, if that's more accessible, providing them with cool, not cold water to drink, applying cool, not cold water or cloths and replacing those cloths continuously to their head, their stomach, their armpits and their feet. So that will help cool them down quicker in those areas. Provide airflow across your dog to increase evaporative heat loss and call your veterinarian. That is probably the most important step out of all of the things I just mentioned. Heat stress can become an emergency very quickly, so you really should be sure to monitor your dog carefully when their temperatures are rising. So I think that goes back to what you're saying. Just keep a really close eye on your dogs all summer long. You can catch any of those heat stress signs I just mentioned very early on just by observing your dog and seeing, okay, they might need a break. I need to bring them inside. I need to get them cold water. But keeping an eye on your dog really is the first step in just keeping them safe all summer, regardless of where you live, how hot it gets. That's the number one thing that I would say you can do for your dogs that really can prevent a lot of horrible accidents along the way. I would add, if you're at a dog sporting event, because we have all these wonderful sports and increased participation, and you have concerns about your dog, ask other people at the event, because there are knowledgeable people there, not necessarily us breeders, but other competitors who can tell you and are more than willing to share their expertise with you. It's a wonderful community, this dog community. Yeah, I agree. You really should lean on your fellow community members as much as you can. Someone will always be there to help you. To wrap things up on a slightly more positive and exciting note, because summer is such an exciting time, I had a few tips for keeping your dog entertained in the heat. I don't know if you have any others to add, but For me, I had playing in sprinklers, whether you live where you have them in your backyard or they're in your local park. Sprinklers can be really fun for your dog to run through and keep cool, adding frozen treats into your freezer and just bringing those out with you throughout the day, even getting them a little wading pool if you you live somewhere where actual bodies of water are not accessible to you. But if you do, maybe going to the beach or the lake. And playing indoors maybe more often to cool down, changing your walking schedule around, like going out in the morning or the evening, just to kind of beat the heat a little bit. But is there anything else that you would add to that, that you keep your dogs happy and entertained in the summer months? Yeah, we hike trails with our dogs. There are wonderful trails here. If you haven't been to Tennessee, you're now invited. 
Uh, <laughs> we have wonderful, wonderful state parks, national parks, lots of trails to go on. So we love hiking trails with our dogs. We continue socialization throughout their lives. So we do the walk through Lowe's and Home Depot. And there's a great number of restaurants and other venues where they're dog friendly nowadays. So we go out with them. Like I said, we treat them like a member of their family. We may not take five dogs out at a time, but we try and rotate through the dogs and give them all a great experience. So just don't ever take a Border Collie to a Scottish festival. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> That's for next time. Yeah. Well, those are all great suggestions. And just thank you so much again for joining me today to talk about such an important topic ahead of summer but really just things that people can implement into their daily lives to just hopefully keep themselves and their dogs that we all love a little bit safer. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all of this with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of The Good Dog Pod. We are so happy we could have Roger join us to share his incredible story with us, as well as these crucial tips on emergency evacuation safety for our dogs. We hope these tips we shared with you today will help you and your dogs not only have a wonderful summer, but a safe one. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you back here on June 28th for our next episode with Good Dogs, Dr. Ritter. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.